0: Of good parent's plays and thinks about its own needs and is not really aware how the parents are working or struggling or worrying to protect the child. So in a similar way, uh, from this mahavarta perspective, we may not be aware of all that is being done on our behalf within the universe and that things we take for granted such as the regularity the sunrise and the sunset and the fact that there is a certain still uh, remnant of moral order in the world, and that we have somehow the freedom to pursue our spiritual visions and so on, that, that these things are not merely due to earthly circumstances, but, but even on a um, superior level within the universe, that there are different competing forces, uh, and the forces of good often act on our behalf. So that's a general background. Um... Even actually in the Old Testament, what's interesting is that according to uh, scholars of the Old Testament, uh, there is a recognition that the universe, that within the universe there are different powerful beings. And uh, actually, in the First Commandment, or or the uh, "That you shall have no other gods before me," is not the claim that there are no other gods, but simply that you have to get them. And in other parts of the Old Testament, there are actually lists of different deities. However, with the always with the uh, insistence that one has to ultimately give oneself to the Supreme God. So the notion that uh, the universe is not a, you could say, desert, but actually is inhabited. There's a certain, you could say, celestial demographics. There There are things going on up there and out there. And so getting to the Mahabharata, we find actually a description in the eighth canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, which is sort of the preface of the events of the Mahabharata, in which there was a great battle, just as there are often tensions between those who would do good in the world and those who would simply pursue their own selfish desires, regardless of the cost to others, and occasionally these tensions uh, break out into actual conflict, uh, despite best efforts to avoid it. So, Similarly, uh, long ago there was such a conflict between what in Sanskrit is called suras, or the godly persons, and the asuras, which is just the opposite. Also called, for example, devas, godly persons, or the daityas or danavas. And so, and so this, uh, so in this, and, and these, these two forces were actually family, in, in a sense, just like uh, you were chanting. Uh, Shankaracharya uh, Adwaita gurus. Mm-hmm. And so Adwaita, the, the understanding that everyone is actually related, that there's a oneness between all life, and actually be, that all things that exist share existence and are somehow connected and united. So even these uh, Suras and Asuras w- were cousins. The Suras, many the leaders of the Suras, being children of Aditi and the Asuras of Aditi. In any case, the in this case, the Asuras, the bad guys, were actually doing very well by themselves and uh, were had a serious chance to prevail. So at that point, Vishnu appeared. Uh, Vishnu appeared. And uh, as far as Krishna, the whole Mahabharata uh, assumes that you know that Krishna is Vishnu. And... Uh, So who is Vishnu? Vishnu, if we look at the earliest Vedic literature, we generally date the Vedic literature according to linguistic analysis. Just like, for example, if you read the English in Chaucer, it's obviously older than Shakespeare, and Shakespeare is obviously older than the New York Times today. So, in that way, there are different levels. Similarly, in Sanskrit, we can actually see very clearly different levels. So the oldest Sanskrit literature is the Rig Veda the Rig Vedas. And uh, these Vedas were entrusted to communities of sages. So that, anyway, I won't go into the whole history because so I want to talk about the Mahabharata stories, but suffice it to say that each Veda, Rig, Sama, Yajra, Tara, was entrusted to a very serious, you almost, you could say, extended families of sages, who would, uh, of course, treasured and preserved, very precisely, these literatures and handed them down from generation to generation and that's why we have them today. So these communities, these uh, communities of sages who protected and explained and preserved uh, the Vedas produced literature to explain the meaning of their respective Vedas. And uh, this explanatory literature, which is also very ancient, is called the Brahmana literature. So, uh, for the oldest Veda, the oldest Brahmana, in other words, by far, without question, the oldest commentary or oldest explanation of the Rig Veda, thousands of years older actually than, uh, for example, the commentary by Saina, is the Aitareya Brahmana, named after the Rishi country. Uh, so the Aitareya Brahmana is uh, the ancient, in-house commentary on what the Rig Veda actually means. And what's interesting is that in the very first statement of the Ayitura of Brahma, which is 1.1.1.1 the different sections, uh, we have the statement that of all the gods, Vishnu is the highest, Agni is the lowest, because Agni kind of lives in your house as fire. From the word Agni or fire, we have, of course, the English word ignite. Anyway, so, that Vishnu and, and other statements in the Vedas, for example, the Yajur Veda, the word Yajur means uh, Yajur means the way you do sacrifice, yajna. So in the Yajra Veda, we have the statement that Yajyo by Vishnu, that actually the sacrifice in which uh, the sacrifice creates this channel to the divine, and actually the sacrifice is Vishnu, that somehow uh, one, by performing this Vedic sacrifice, one directly comes into the presence of Vishnu, and so on. So there are many statements like this in the Vedas. So Vishnu traditionally, historically, was uh, in very ancient times, the he sucked with Devita, superintending uh, goodness and so on. And so Vishnu came on the scene and as soon as he appeared, a uh, an Asura bad guy named Kalanemi rushed at him for wanting to kill Vishnu. And uh, the opposite happened. That Kalanemi was killed. And there were others like Vipracini and so on. Anyway, to make a long story short, the, the gods prevailed. But at that time, Uh, the asuras who wanted to seize control of the universe and uh, for their own selfish purposes, sort of like the, you you know, Star Wars, the dark side of the force. They actually came up with a strategy of how to proceed. And their strategy resulted in the events of the Mahabharata. So that's the background. Basically, if you study insurgency movements all around the world, in other words, if there's some political or military force that wishes to gain, seize control of a state or country and fails. Uh, and you see this all around the world, whether it's in Chechnya or Colombia or... I mean, all around the world, you, know, you see these things and in the area between pa- uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. What insurgencies always do is they, first of all, go to some remote geographic area where, the, so, to, so to speak, the government forces can't reach them. So this usually uh, means mountains, as in Colombia or Chechnya, may mean desert, as in the case of uh, North Africa. It may mean jungles, and so on and so forth. To go to some place that is, that is topographically, geographically accessible, or where they will not be noticed, where they can get away, a very secluded point, where they will not, not be seen, and regroup, and eventually march on the capital, so to speak. So this is exactly what happened uh, back then. According to the Mahabharata, again, this is, you have to read the unabridged Mahabharata to get all these details. Um, the the, gods, the demons or, or, or the asuras divided at that point actually one group Bali decided not to do this and to actually respect Vishnu and he eventually met Vishnu and became uh, he's considered within the Vedic tradition a great soul because of his relation to Vishnu that was one group and that story is told later with Vamana and so on uh, Trivikram however to continue their fight. They were determined to take over the universe, determined to uh, impose their will, and so on. And so they came up with the following plan, which is uh, the Mahabharata story. First of all, they recognized the force of Dharma, as in, again, I hate to keep going to Star Wars, but uh, even the bad guys, you know, use the force, but they use the dark side of the force. So their plan basically, first they have they have a guru. The asuras also have their guru, because some, you know, they're, a guru is simply an empowered teacher, and some of them fight for good, and some of them fight for the opposite. So, in this case, uh, the guru was Shukra whose name literally in English means uh, Professor White. <laughs> so, Professor White uh, was the guru of the Asuras, who were, so to speak, his clients. And Shukra had the power, a power called Samjivani Shakti which means that if his uh, clients, his, the asuras, if their bodies were not completely destroyed, he could bring them back to life. And that's actually what he did. He, he, he brought their souls back within their bodies. He brought them back to life. And so at that point, they formed a, you could say, a demonic insurgency. Their plan was to choose, to go to a remote out of the way, other side of the cosmic tracks, planet. Some remote, sleepy planet. And, uh, and take control of that planet. And the way they would do this is uh, by manipulating the power of dharma. In other words, by taking birth within the families of the ruling dynasties of that planet, they would become the rulers of the planet. Without violating Dharma. And also, the Mahabharata describes that by taking birth, even as, uh, let's say, carnivorous animals in all the great forests and jungles that, that filled India at the time, uh, they could actually attack and kill the sages, the yogis, who meditated in the forests and the mountains for the good of the world. Their meditation was actually directed at the these communities of sages, again, without violating Dharma, because to attack a human being is dharma, is the Dharma of animals. And so this was the idea. Now, the sleepy, out-of-the-way planet they chose was good old Earth. And uh, that's... So that's the background of the Mahabharata story. That's the background of the Mahabharata story, that the Earth was chosen, sort of wanted to transform the earth into if you know if you know your Star Wars into a type of Death Star. Take over this planet and then use it to launch further operations. So uh, according to the Vedas there is a goddess who is responsible for this earth. In fact, all practically all the words for earth in Sanskrit are feminine. Boo, Bu, bumi, and uh Vasundara. So, uh, Bhumi, this goddess, uh, realizing what was going on, that and and, and being unable to deal with it herself, uh, went to Brahma, the creator. I mean, imagine—I remember back in the '50s when the Hell's Angels, that motorcycle gang, first became uh, a cultural force in America. Uh, They sort of burst onto the public, onto the scene by going to some little town out desert and literally taking over the town. You know, here's some little town, maybe they got like two police officers, sort of Andy Griffith type, two police officers or something. And uh, suddenly, you know, maybe like twenty or thirty or forty these tough guys, Hell's Angels, roar into town their motorcycles and the police are just, you know, they can't do anything.
1: So they gotta get on the
0: phone and call up the state and say, you know, we can't we can't deal with this. So it was exactly like that. Boomy could not deal with this invasion because these uh, beings that were taking birth on the earth were actually from a more powerful, a higher sector of the universe, just in terms of material power and so on. So, Bhumi, this is a very famous story which is told in Mahabharata, it's really told in so many Sanskrit literatures the story of Bhumi uh, going to Brahma and pleading for help. Brahma, at that point, realizing that this was very serious. Brahma realized that this was very serious because remember these asuras had almost defeated the devas what what, what tipped the balance in the devas favor, the god's favor, was the appearance of Vishnu and Vishnu wasn't around right now. Vishnu wasn't there. And so Brahma was seriously concerned and therefore he went to what is called the ocean of milk. Uh, There are all kinds of fantastic things described in the Vedas. Uh... We should not be geocentric. Interestingly, although let's say materialistic scientists never tire of reminding us how people used to be geocentric and they saved the world from the idea that the Earth is the center of the universe. We now, or the solar system, we now know it's heliocentric, the sun is in the center. And so if you ever take classes in school, they never, never tire of bragging about all this. But interestingly, often in our concept of what's going on in the universe, uh, materialistic scientists are still geocentric and believe that really all that's happening that we know is just what goes on on Earth. But there are many other things going on in the universe which we may not be aware of. Just like an ant crawling on your arm doesn't really know who you are. Although the ant, in one sense, knows more about the topography of your arm than you do, and yet it doesn't know that that's an arm arm and you're a person. So in the same way, uh, there's a real sense in which human beings don't actually know where they are and what the earth is and so on and so forth. They're almost like ants crawling on the body of a human. So anyway, uh, so Brahma went to the shore of this great ocean and prayed to Vishnu. And the message came back that this was serious and that Vishnu himself would come and actually take birth on the earth. And uh, Vishnu also uh, told the suras they should also come and participate and he would deal with it. So that, that being done, uh, and specifically Vishnu indicated that he would come in the Yadu dynasty. That was one of the great dynasties of the world at that time, the Yadu dynasty, and therefore a very famous name of Krishna is Yadava or Yadupati or, and so on and so forth because he appeared in this dynasty.
1: Now after that, meanwhile,
0: back on earth, this appearance of Vishnu was going to come later. And in the meantime, the Asuras were taking birth, and uh, you could say the first wave of the counterinsurgency, the first thing that happened was another avatar, not Vishnu himself, but another avatar assisting Vishnu came first. And that avatar is uh, Vyasa, Vedavyas, who was always... Uh, described in these texts as an avatar. If you ask, who would, again, participate in the events and recount them and help to move the action along? So, um, so what I want to talk about now is, so, imagine you're back on Earth many, many thousands of years ago, and uh, bad things are happening because the Asuras have come. There are unprecedented attacks on yogis and sages, and uh, people start to notice that kind of strange people are taking birth as princes in important royal families. And, uh, but of course, the, the godly people are still there. They, they're still a the majority on earth, but things are starting to change and, and there's great concern. So at this point, I want to go directly to some of the stories. Uh, I'm going to talk about two couples, two couples, men and women, Men and, women, and uh, what happened to them and how each one lost the other and then the surviving member of the, the relationship how they, those two found each other and this is uh, very much related to the Mahabharata then, so it's going to get a little romantic now. In that part of the world and, and actually if you look at a map if you look at a world map And, uh, Two hundred years ago, up to two or two hundred, two hundred fifty years ago, over practically a quarter of all the wealth in the world was in India. Even the Roman Empire had a serious economic problem because they were importing so many things from India, and they had nothing India wanted, so they had to give them gold. I guess the Indians that time went into Roman statues, or whatever. So. Anyway, so you have this land, which is practically the geographic center of, the ma- of, of, of most of the world. It was by far the richest country in the world, something that Marco Polo noticed and so on. And the place where, uh, according to Magosides, a an ambassador to India uh, 2,300 years ago, uh, the one place in the world he found that there was no slavery, where there were not only human rights, but animal rights, freedom, and and, and all kinds of things. The the, the civilization came up with the whole yoga thing, this whole discovery that the real object of consciousness is consciousness. And the land where, according to this ancient literature, where the avatars appear, sort of like the landing strip. You know, it's it's the airport for the avatars. So you have this extraordinary place. And... In this land at that time, uh, the greatest dynasty in that in that whole large area was the Kuru dynasty. In fact, uh, that's why the Bhagavad Gita begins by talking saying that uh, on the Dharma field, Dharma Kshetri, on the field of the Shantanu. Shantanu. And it is said that Shantanu was so virtuous, he had the power to heal simply by touching someone. He could heal them. This is something which is mentioned in the Bhagavatam, the Mahabharata. It's, in fact, that's the etymology of his name. That he could bring healing to the body just by touching it. So this great king Shantanu uh, through various circumstances met Ganga. Actually, I am saying Ganga 4 was a very beautiful place. I congratulate you on this. Um, anyway, Ganga Devi, the Ganges. There is a goddess. The idea here is that behind everything there are people. For example, the lights are on here. And, and the microphone is working. But someone came and set this up. It's mechanical. This is a mechanical sound system, but there are people behind it. And let's say, if all goes well, there's breakfast this morning. You know, It's right there on the table, but someone worked very sincerely to cook it. So, the idea here is that behind everything, there's personal consciousness. Nothing is quote-unquote automatic. So there's also this, this goddess, Ganga. And uh, she somehow met, she was on Earth. Because there used to be, according to this a picture of the world, uh, a lot of interplanetary intercourse. There was, so to speak, a cosmic village. Nowadays we talk about a global village. So the Mahabharata really gives us a picture of a cosmic village. Anyway, whoops, losing track of time. Seven forty-five. I uh, sell the board. So, <laughs> somehow or other, Shantanu, Shantanu met Ganga. They fell in love, even though she was a celestial being and he was a human being of earth. But it was sort of a you know mixed marriage. <laughs> so they they fell in love and married, and had and there are other stories I'll, I'll sort of skip because uh, for various reasons. But anyway. They had this very powerful child named Devavrata, who becomes one of the main figures of the Mahabharata. They had a son named Devavrata, who was very powerful. But uh, at a certain point, Ganga felt that uh, she wanted to go back to her celestial community and not stay on the earth. And of course, her Shantanu was heartbroken, but she, for various reasons, could not stay on the earth. I mean, she stays on the earth as the Ganges, but in terms of her personal life, I mean, she's not literally just water, or, you know, melting Himalayan snow. She actually is a person who is the goddess of the Ganges, and so, and infuses her own uh, pure nature into the water. But she went back to her own celestial community. She couldn't stay there. So Shantan was heartbroken, and although he was this great king, the king of kings, so to speak, uh, he left his city. He was too depressed to govern, so he left the city of Hastinapur. That was the great guru capital, Hastinapur. He left the city in the charge of his ministers and assistants, and he simply went wandering. Uh, now, at the, by the way, Ganga had taken their son and said that she would train him, uh, not only in human, the human art of war, but even give him celestial powers. And eventually she did bring him back. She did bring back this boy and uh, who was trained actually in sort of unearthly powers and weapons and so on, Deva Brata. So meanwhile, of course, even though uh, Shantanu was, was ecstatic have his son back, he was still depressed. He really was not the bachelor type. And so he was wandering. In fact, he wandered hundreds of miles from his kingdom, if you actually plot the geography on a map. He, wandered far from his kingdom uh, incognito just depressed just sort of living in the forest and so on and until he met one day he met this very beautiful maiden and fell in love with her again now I'll I'll speak about who she is Uh, actually because you have to understand who this maiden is she's not an ordinary girl although she came from a a very ordinary family but there's a story of why she was in that family Uh, the girl's name is Satyavati. Satyavati. Vati uh, in Sanskrit is just the feminine for Vaan, as in Bhagavan, and so on. So Satyavati, one who possesses truth. Satyavati was actually the daughter of a king, the great king. Actually, we talked about this king yesterday, upperly mobile Vasu. We mentioned yesterday, Umarichara Vasu. So, had a daughter named Satyavati, very, very beautiful, extraordinarily beautiful girl, that he did not raise. Rather, he gave her to a family of fishing folk. And in India today, back then, uh, fishing was not considered the most aristocratic way to earn a living. And uh, killing fish, so uh, this was not a very high-class family. Why did he do this? Um, There are different stories in the Mahabharata. My personal view on it is that uh was destined to be the mother of an avatar. And this avatar was going to begin the process of counteracting the invasion of the earth. And therefore, uh, in my view, Basu, this King Basu, uh, feared for his daughter's life and sent her away to grow up in a fishing village. So this girl grew up in a fishing village, not really knowing who she was, that she was actually a princess. And, um, so you can imagine, it's, um, back then, there was a very conscious and very rigorous system of genetic engineering, but it was done organically, not in laboratories, but just through very precise marriages. The idea being to create sort of like these super genetic pools, uh, or, or or these, this sort of a super race of human beings either as great sages or as great kings. And so, Satyavati had this, she had this, this, you could say this very powerful nature in terms of her intelligence, in terms of her courage. She was extraordinarily beautiful. And yet, she was born, or she thought she was born, she grew up in this very simple, simple humble community. And later we'll find a similar story in the case of a young, boy who grows up and doesn't know why he's frustrated with his log. And that's, of course, Karna. But in this case, Satyavati is, and and yet, in that very traditional, very conservative community, uh, she's supposed to marry a boy from a fishing family and just spend the rest of her life rowing a boat or fishing or something. And yet, within, she's actually a princess with all these powers and so on. Anyway, When she was still a young girl. To help her father, uh, she would row a little boat across the river. She lived on the Jamunan River. And uh, provide a little extra income for the family. So one day, a very unusual person came and wandered across the river. And this is actually the sage Parashra, one of the great sages one of the great Vedic sages, who was part of the strategy, you could say, to save the earth, and ultimately to save uh, the world beyond the earth. And he recognized Satyavati and understood that she was the one who, with him, would bring an avatar into this world. So uh, they were, they met, and, and he was in this boat, and he explained to her, Six years old, and again in an extremely conservative community. And some man comes along she's never met and says, Could we just um, go have a child over here? So, anyway, somehow or other, uh, of course, he was a great Vedic sage, and, and, he, and he persuaded her that we need to do this. And so they went to an island in the middle of the river, and the Sanskrit word for island is Dweepa. And there, in her this avatar, Vyasa. And because Vyasa was born on an island, he's called White from the word So, uh, because he was an avatar, it said that he took birth and immediately kind of grew into a young boy, which surprised her even further. And then he told her that uh, to address his mission immediately and he was heading for the Himalayan Himalayan mountains where he would go into the deepest yoga trance in order to acquire, in order to connect with the powers that were being given to him to perform his mission in the world. And Parashra also could not stay on the earth. as a great sage. So suddenly here's this girl and of course she physiologically is made a virgin again. But emotionally, so you can imagine the emotional state of this girl. On the one hand, she was born. I mean, she thinks that she's the daughter of a fishing family. Inside, she's a princess and doesn't know really why she's not happy just to stay in this little fishing community. Suddenly her life changes, she meets the high, someone from the, you know, the highest possible social rank, who's this Vedic sage. And so, her, you know that sense she suddenly is dealing not with some of the lowest people in the social ladder but the highest and this very exalted Sun Falling deeply in love, even in the case of having the chance to go from rags to riches, they have to follow dharma. because that's, and, and, and that's the difference between, of course, the suras and the asuras. So Satyavati, being a virtuous girl, not only very beautiful, says that I have to get my father's blessings. Even though, of course, you can imagine how much I mean, she was loved, but, but she had to get her So they go to the father and he is uh, sort of conniving and shrewd. He's the king of the fishing folk. There's little fishing village, but he's the king. And he really thinks he's a king. And so of course he is astonished that suddenly Shantanu himself, the Kuru monarch, walks into his cottage. And the idea that he wants it, but he tells Shantanu that uh, I have a problem with this. My problem is that you have a son, Deva Brata, who is famous all over the world as not only the greatest warrior, but someone who actually has even unearthly powers. And he is going to inherit the throne, which means that my grandson and the son of my daughter will never actually uh, not only will never actually rule a kingdom, but actually uh, will always be in danger. Because who knows you know, what your son, David Rudge, will do to him. Or, and, and so he, he said, I, I, I don't approve it because I fear for my grandson. And Shantanu, who had, of course, promised the kingdom to David Rudge's son, could not do anything. Now, this is very interesting. I mean, compare this to what you know about European monarchy or monarchy in other parts of the world where it would have been reluctantly, very, practically more depressed than ever, he goes back, he he, he goes back to the city of Sanabu. And he won't talk about it, he doesn't want to talk about it with anyone. But it doesn't, you know, in a very short time, everyone that really knows him well, his ministers and his son, everyone notices that he's really more depressed than ever, he's really miserable. And eventually he does tell his ministers, he doesn't want to tell his son that I'm miserable. Tell his son that. But finally, Deva Bratta goes to the ministers and says, why is my father so depressed? And uh, they tell him what happened because by this time something had revealed to them. So, Deva Bratta, who again, who loves his father very much and is completely dedicated to his father, decides that he Girl for his father. <laughs> so we'll talk about that this evening. I guess now we'll leave a little more time.